go on and grab a Bible. I see Kirkland over there. Tom, just kind of just slip a hand. You want to follow along with us. They'll get you a Bible. But because we're outside, and it's so funny, we, uh, we, we always enjoy May because of the beautiful weather, that we can enjoy our beautiful courtyard. And welcome to Georgia. You never know what you're going to get. But hey, we uh, we will enjoy it. And actually, we're not going to complain about the cloud cover. Uh, it's uh, it's going to be it's a beautiful day. But we uh, we do enjoy getting to be outside and doing something a little bit different for the month of May. And one of those things is just kind of a little more informal of a gathering. And and I say this every week that way more important than anything that I could say from up here is what God wants to be speaking into your lives and your heart through His Word personally as you engage in the Scriptures all week long. And then we just come together on Sundays to, to worship, to remember, to encourage one another, to celebrate the things that God has been doing throughout the week, and to be refreshed to go into the next week. And so with that in mind, I would love to just read the Word together. And so whoever you came with or just somebody that's around you, pick a reader and, uh, and just read out loud to each other in little groups. Mark 10, verse 13 through 16. Mark 10, 13 through 16. So go ahead and read that out loud to each other. A short little passage, but a beautiful little passage that is packed with meaning in a way that we don't necessarily get immediately because of the the cultural context that we live in, where children are valued. In in our world, children are are important. They're wanted. They're delights and joys most of the time. But it's very different than the world in which this is being written in, and we'll get into that in a second. But I want to first look at what Jesus does here. And then we're going to actually zoom out and maybe get some understanding of some other passages around this one. But Jesus takes these these children. They're being brought to him. This world or this community has seen the things that Jesus has done, the miracles that he's done as he's given sight to the blind, restored the hearing of the deaf, touched and cleansed the leper and the unclean. Those that everyone else had given up on or forgotten about, didn't care about. Jesus showed up in their world and loved the brokenhearted, restored the lost, taught with power and authority. And so, of course, any good mom, grandmom would want that kind of person, that miracle worker, that that amazing teacher, that prophet of God, that man of God to bless their children. And so they're eagerly bringing their little ones to Jesus. Well, the disciples see this. Jesus is in the middle of a, 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 a whirlwind tour where he has just begun to announce what he must face on his way to restoring the kingdom of God. That he's going to suffer and he is going to be betrayed. That he is going to be killed and then be raised again. And they don't understand what that means, but they understand the tension and the pain that Jesus is facing the seriousness of the task at hand. And so they don't have time 
for the nonsense of this, these little ones. And yet what does Jesus do? It says that he takes them in his arms, laying his hands on them. That there is this intimate, personal connection. We've said all along as we read the Gospel of Mark that, that Jesus comes announcing, displaying, embodying the kingdom of God. In other words, what does it look like when God shows up? That if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. We say this every week. If we want to know how God talks to people, look how Jesus talks to people. If we want to know how God treats people, look how Jesus treated people. And how does Jesus treat these children? He blesses them. Takes them in his arms. That God, and, and hear this, because whether you like it or not, your image of God has been shaped by your experience of your parents good or bad. And there are some of you that need to let go of some broken images of God to embrace the reality of God as presented in Scripture and revealed by Jesus. And what do we see in Jesus? We see a God who is not distant, not some impersonal force or irrelevant power, but a relational being who desires connection with his children to bless them. God's heart is to bless the children. God's heart is for the next generation. When we talk about as a church that we're all about reaching the next generation, that's not a great idea that we came up with because that just seemed like a good church strategy. No, no, it is what we see saturating the pages of Scripture and displayed in Jesus' life. That God is for the next generation to bless. Literally, that word means to speak well of. It's the word eulogia, which is where we get the English word eulogy. Uh, tomorrow morning, it, it will be uh, a, a sacred honor, but also a, a sad celebration as we will honor a, a gentleman named Ron Carruth, Don's husband, who passed away this weekend. And his family and some friends, they will get up and they will speak a eulogy. They will speak well of his life to honor God and to honor him. But what we see is the idea of blessing, to speak life, to speak words of life, isn't just something that is meant to be done at the end of life, but it's meant to sustain us through life. The idea of blessing is in the very heart of God from the first pages of Scripture. God creates this world, and what is the first thing he does? He blesses it. And then he creates mankind and sets them in this good world that he made. And what does he do? He blesses them. He speaks words of life that propels them into their future with him and his kingdom. And then he gives mankind the ability to bless, that our words have power. Our words have significance. You know the power of words in your life, whether you like it or not. One of the greatest or biggest lies that we're told as children is a little phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but your words will never hurt me. I will call falsehood. <laughs> it's not the first word that came to mind <laughs> on that. Amen? 
We know it. We know the power of our words. But we also don't just have the, the power of our words to wound or, or to, to, uh, to d- diminish or demolish. We, our words also have the power to bring forth life. It is what we do on mornings like this when we speak words of hope and life and love over these children. But that's not just meant for the end of life. It's not just meant for the beginning of life, but it's meant to sustain us through life. We are meant to be people of blessing. The advancement of the kingdom of God comes in a culture of blessing. Speaking words of life that propel forward in love. And Jesus says some crazy things about blessing. That we're not just simply to bless those that we like and that we love. That'd be easy. You know, this person's nice to me. I'll say nice things about them. But that jerk, there's no way. But what does Jesus say? Luke, uh, Luke 6, 28. But to those of you who will listen, I like that, that he starts with that phrase. Like Most of you are going to ignore this because we like to ignore the things that we don't like to hear. But for those of you that are going to listen, I say, love, the word there is sacrificial, love, your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whew. I don't like that one as much. I don't think I'm alone, am I? I mean, the kingdom of God flips all kinds of things upside down, and this one more than almost anything else. That we are to be people that speak words of life and love even to those that would diminish or demolish or destroy or undermine us. That our response to being torn apart is to build up, to pray God's best for those that are wishing our worst. Now, to be honest, God's best sometimes requires, actually I'll say it always requires some hard turns. Repentance, brokenness, all of those things. To pray God's best doesn't just mean to pray a happy, happy life with rainbows and unicorns. But it is that God's will would be born out in that person for their good and for God's glory. Do we carry, people of God, followers of Jesus, do we carry a posture of blessing that speaks words of life even in the face of hatred and mistreatment and cursing? I'm not telling you to do it. It's just what Jesus said. In fact, I would rather just skip those parts of Scripture. But it's also what transforms a place. To be the kind of people that go into environments and call forth God's best, even when everyone else has given up on it. To see and believe God's best. What would it look like for the kingdom of God to be fully advanced in this place with that problem, in that person? I mean, think right now about the person that despises you the most, the person that drives you the craziest, the person that makes you the angriest. And don't look at the person next to you if y'all had a hard morning. But what would it look like? Could we be the kind of people with faith that can imagine God's best being born out of that situation? Being revealed in that person. Restoring that problem. It's what we believe about this city. That we are to be people of blessing that go into places of brokenness and hurt and loss and hopelessness. Because we carry a good 
present, living, and active God. And his kingdom has come. And his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Romans twelve fourteen. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That means to tear apart or to diminish. 1 Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. How are our words and our actions releasing life and propelling the people around us forward into God's love and power? Hebrews 10:24 And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some have been in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as the day approaches. That's why the rhythm of what we do on Sundays is so important. Not because it's the end-all, be-all of our spiritual lives or community, but because it is a space that we create a regular rhythm in our life of encouraging one another, propelling one another forward into God's best. We talk about this a lot, but, and for those of you that went through Genesis with us, we just see the nature of blessing all throughout the book of Genesis. But literally in the Hebrew, the root of blessing, it's the Hebrew word is barak, and, uh, and it means to bend the knee. In other words, to intentionally lower ourselves for the sake of another, to lift up another, to give honor to, to ascribe a value to. In other words, to say, you have so much value to me that I choose to add to your life. Again, go back to Jesus' radical command that we do that for, our, for those who hate us, that persecute us, that actively choose to, to wound or, or destroy us. To say, you have so much value to me that I choose to add to your life. What kind of community would that look like? This is what Jesus does for us, and it's what Jesus calls us to do for each other. But this passage in Mark is more than just about that. It's more than just simply God revealing, I mean, Jesus revealing the heart of God or giving us an example to follow. Mark 10, 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So what does it mean to receive the kingdom like a child? Now this passage is not primarily, or is not at all, about the innocence or the purity of children. In fact, if you've been around any children, you know that not all of them ever are innocent or pure, are they? I mean, there's some delightful moments, like when they're asleep. Also, so you know, this has been a passage, and I know a grace that we have a, a wide variety of, of church backgrounds. One of my favorite, uh, um, I call them buddyisms. Buddy was the guy that mentored me that started grace years ago. Uh, that he used to say about grace uh, was 
that if, if we don't have a big enough tent for Catholics, Charismatics, and Calvinists to sit around the fire of Jesus, we don't have a big enough tent. That we're going to stay rooted in the Word of God and learn how to love each other well and to love Him. And so, but this passage has been used in, in some traditions uh, to justify or to argue for infant baptism, which is different than what we just did this morning. We weren't baptizing these children, we were dedicating these children. That's not what this passage is about. Its primary point is the need to be like a child. In other words, fully and completely dependent in order to enter the kingdom of God. I mentioned before that, that we have a different sort of cultural context in the way that we approach children. We put a lot of time and value and energy into raising children well, into providing for children, to meeting their needs. We have entire parenting programs around, you know, ch that child first. And uh, we, we see, and just in regards to the, the amount of marketing towards making sure that your child is taken care of, has the best. And not to say there's anything wrong with that, but that's just not the world into which Jesus was speaking. The world in which Jesus was speaking is that children had no value. They were another mouth to feed in an already hungry home. Now, maybe if that child survived and there was a strong likelihood that that child would not even survive, so why attach yourself too deeply to a child that may not even make it? And if they make it, it's going to make it way harder on the family till they can get old enough to add some value, to work in the field, or to take on the father's trade or maybe to bear their own children so they can extend the family line. But a child in itself was a valueless object, completely dependent upon the parents. It makes sense then why the disciples weren't like, oh, yay, it's the children, it's children's church. And they're like, what are you doing? Jesus has way more important things to do than to deal with this mess. And it was there that Jesus said, no, 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 you don't get it. Unless you have the heart of a child, unless we recognize that we are in the same way, in the state of a child, we are not able to enter into the kingdom of God. To recognize that we come to God with nothing to offer. These children that we just prayed over, have done nothing of significance or value in the world. The only thing they've produced so far is some dirty diapers. But they take. They take a lot of energy. They take a lot of time. They take a lot of care. They're completely helpless and dependent. And Jesus says, unless we become like one of those, cannot enter to receive the kingdom of God. The main point of comparison is the insignificance, the weakness, the helplessness, and the dependency shared by children. And that is what is required to enter into the kingdom of God. Not to make ourselves helpless and dependent. Listen to me on this. Not to make yourselves helpless and dependent, but just to recognize the actual truth that before God, you are helpless and dependent. I am helpless and dependent. 
Now, I also know that in our American culture, a can-do attitude, uh, you make it for yourself, independent, prove your worth, this does not teach well. This is what Jesus says, that the first thing that we have to face is that we, in, on our own power, have nothing of value to offer God. But instead, we are in a position of simply receiving the love and the grace and the power that he offers us. In other words, there is nothing that you can do to make God love you anymore. There's nothing that you can do to earn his approval. All you can do is receive the reality that in Jesus Christ, he approved, accepted, embraced you and me and all of our brokenness, in our worthlessness, in our empty attempts, to show that we have what it takes in all of our efforts to build our own kingdoms, that Jesus chose to love us first. And the moment that we begin to come to God from a posture of this is what I have to prove, this is what I have to give, is the moment that we miss the entire message of the gospel and the kingdom. Like a child, we come to God with nothing to offer having done nothing to deserve his love, acceptance, and grace, and fully dependent on him to be the one to meet our needs, to heal our hearts, to provide, and to protect us. Like a child. Now, I debated going into this next section and so I'm just going to kind of set it up and then encourage you to, to go with God in this week and ask some, some hard questions. But it's interesting that this passage is actually placed directly between two of the hardest teachings of Jesus in the entire Gospel of Mark. His teaching on marriage and divorce and his, te- and his interaction with a rich young ruler and his teaching on money. And this declaration that unless we receive the kingdom of God like a little child placed between two of these really hard conversations actually comes at a perfect place because if we're honest, two of the areas that wreak the most havoc in our world and in our lives that I know that many of you are walking into today carrying baggage from is marriage and money. That we carry the wounds and the consequences, the struggles and the regrets, whether it's of our own choices or the choices that people made around us when it comes to those intimate relationships, when it comes to the ways that we handle and deal with, hold on to and claim, cling to our possessions, our stuff. And so the question becomes, What would it look like to become like a child in the kingdom of God when it comes to our marriages, our relationships, and our money? What does it look like to enter our family from the posture of a dependent child before God 
that needs him to meet our needs, to give us guidance, to bring healing, to hold us close. That place of intimate connection with a God who chooses to bless us, who brings us in and holds us close. Now, as you're reading that the passage as Jesus interacts uh, with the Pharisees around marriage, is to recognize that Jesus is having a conversation with people who are trying to trap him in his words, to test him. At best, trying to delegitimize his ministry as as a rabbi, as a teacher, as a miracle worker. At worst, they're trying to get him into the same camp as John the Baptist, who was executed by Herod for the things that he taught about marriage and divorce. And so if they could get Jesus to to repeat the same things John was saying, then they're basically setting his head on a platter like John the Baptist's head was offered because of the things that he said. And Jesus turns those questions back on them and actually goes back to God's created intent. What he designed us to live for. What it looks like to live into wholeness and freedom. Going back to the beginning of Genesis. That God's desire is for mankind to live in wholeness and harmony with one another and with him. And that this is what Jesus came to do. Not to regulate and impose a set of rules and laws back over God's children, but to restore their broken hearts of God's children back to their Heavenly Father. To restore his people into wholeness and freedom in every area of life. And there's no question that divorce causes tremendous pain and has far-reaching consequences that don't just impact the married couple. But God's desire is to bring healing and grace for us to come to him like a child, to enter his kingdom and let his kingdom restore all that is lost and all that is broken. I know it's a difficult topic for Mother's Day. You don't just pick your cheery, but we just read the Bible and see what it has to say. But I hope what you're hearing is a message of hope, that Jesus came to restore. Whatever you are bringing into this space this morning, Jesus came to heal, to move us forward into the ways of his kingdom. But to receive the kingdom of God, we must become like little children. And all of the ways that we are trying to build our own lives, all the ways that we are striving to prove our value and worth, we're actually missing the point of the gospel. Jesus then, it says, interacts with this rich young ruler that comes and falls at Jesus' feet and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Elsewhere in the gospels, when this story is told, we, we realize that this is a young man that's a ruler. He has power and influence. He's got affluence. He's got wealth. He's got everything the world could say that he needs or could want. And yet there's still something he's lacking. There's still a question burning in his soul. That eternal hole or void in his heart. What does it take for eternal life? Jesus again, as he does, turns the question back around to him points back to the Ten Commandments and says, well, don't kill anyone. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal from others. Honor your mother and your father. Young man, check, check, check. I've done all of these things. 
And then it says, Jesus looking at the man. I want you to get this part right here. And loving him. Says, but this one thing. Sell everything you have. And follow me. We don't have a gotcha God. Anywhere in this chapter is God trying to nail somebody or restrict somebody or make somebody's life miserable. What God is trying to do is to move his people towards wholeness and freedom, the experience of the kingdom of God, everything that we were created to be, to become, to know, and to do. The God who sees you and knows you and loves you, and he looks personally at this young man. And recognizes that there is something in his life that is holding him back from entering the kingdom like a child. And for him, it's his stuff. I said in marriage that that was, uh, he's talking to a group of people who are trying to test him. Jesus isn't having a pastoral conversation with somebody that's struggling with the pain of a, of a difficult marriage. But here he is pastorally talking personally to a young man who he's seeing the depths of his soul, who he wants more for, and sees the ways that money is holding him back from what God has. So what does it look like to receive the kingdom of God like a child when it comes to money? Fully dependent. Looking to him to meet our needs. Not entitled or demanding or manipulating this open-handed posture of receiving. That in all things, we are dependent on God. So this morning, as we engage again in worship, as we are invited to experience the sacrament of communion, from that place of dependence, that place of recognizing our own brokenness and our own need. And yes, we celebrate all kinds of moms this morning, the spiritual mothers that God is raising up, but we all begin from the posture of a child. How is God inviting you to become like a child, even this morning, that you might receive the fullness of the kingdom? How is he inviting you, dependent on him, blessed by God, an intimate connection with your creator, looking constantly to him, to listen to his voice, keeping your eyes on the one that made you, looking constantly for wisdom and guidance, peace and comfort. How do you need to be held by your heavenly father this morning? Lift it up. Healed, filled, satisfied, blessed. So I want to pray for us. And may we respond to Jesus' words even, and maybe especially the ones that are the most challenging. What does it mean to become like a child? And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And even to pray that Psalm 139 prayer, God, search me and know me. 
Is there any wayward thought in me? We're told not to take communion uh, without first examining ourselves. Communion, that sacrament, that reminder of Jesus who moments before going to the cross would gather with his disciples in that upper room, taking that bread of the Passover, breaking it and saying, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. And every time you do this, do this remembrance of me. May you take the bread of communion from the posture of a child dependent on your father to sustain you, to nourish you, to provide for you. Here, listen to me. Maybe this is just for somebody, I don't know. He knows what you need. God knows what you need better than you do. And his heart is for you. He's not the one holding back. Jesus would then take that cup, that Passover cup of redemption, and he would say, this cup that we've been holding up for thousands of years, waiting for this moment, this cup is actually my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, the blood of a new covenant. Take, drink, and every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. The blood of Jesus that offers the forgiveness of God. That there is nothing that separates you from his love. Nothing you have done, nothing you ever will do. Can you take the cup from the posture of a child? Dependent on your father. So we have communion set up in the corners over here and over here invite you to just pray and to be honest with God in that posture of confession and repentance and when you're ready to go take communion as a family encourage you to pray together as you take communion to bless each other as we receive the blessing of God and become the people of blessing in this world so Lord Jesus we thank you that you took these little children in your arms even though they had nothing to offer you except themselves. And you blessed them. And so this morning, all of your children gathered here, not just the little ones that we dedicated, but all of us from six months to 80 years old. May we come to you like your children, embraced in your arms, blessed by you. Will you speak into the depths of our soul and call us home, Lord? And it's in your precious and powerful name we pray.